Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are five of my Black classmates, Ezra Griffith, Jerry Secundi, Fred Easter, George Jones, and Connie McDougall. I'm also joined by classmates Bill Collins, Hampton Howell, Alton Briscoe, Mason Morfitt, and Marcy Benstock. Our guest is Gary Peller. He is a professor of constitutional law at the Georgetown University Law Center. He is an expert on critical race theory and has been associated with the CRT movement for more than 30 years. My mother worked in the in the anti-poverty program. Uh, we ended up living near Fort McPherson, but in the in the uh, African American Southwest part of Atlanta. And I went to one of the only white kids, about twenty white kids, in what used to be Southwest Atlanta High School. It's now called Benjamin Mays after the great educator Benjamin Mays. Um, uh, Benjamin Mays. Uh, high school. And that's, uh, it was in high school when I had my first kind of taste of, uh, I had always been very taken and, and I read all Martin Luther King's books. Martin Luther King was the, a big hero, uh, a big hero of mine. But in my high school experience, I was exposed to, uh, I would say, um, well, the, the, the seeds of the Black Power movement. And particularly, Again, y'all remember this better than I do, but I'll just tell you in my experience, it was amazing when you think back that the Black Panther Party, we had a chapter in my local high school. And I say, we, there I was a white kid helping out with the Black Panther chapter. It was Black Panthers were very coalition oriented and weren't scared of having white people around like some of the other groups were. And um, and so my, my kind of first, uh, first racial politics activism was writing uh, writing uh, leaflets uh, with the Black Panthers that we were passing out to get the undercover police out of our high school. In retrospect, a ridiculous proposal because the undercover police were necessary in order to disarm people who were bringing guns to school. But you know, you remember the years. <laughs> uh, so um, anyway, that's just a, a little background of, 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 of uh, of where I'm coming from. Uh, I came to critical race theory with Kimberly Crenshaw kind of right at the beginning because uh, 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 critical race theory started as a dissident, uh, a resistance kind of formation within the critical legal studies movement. And the critical legal studies movement was itself a resistance movement, a leftist movement in law school, originating at the elite law schools, Harvard and Yale, led by, you may have heard the name Duncan Kennedy, Morton Horowitz at Harvard Law School, a few others. Um, uh, critical legal studies in law had done a general critique of law that basically said, 
the rule of law in America claims to be neutral and apolitical, but it's not really. It really is political. And that's a very general statement. And I'm, you know, it would take semesters to really go through the, you know, the argument, but, and I, I don't, I'm just telling you in summary, that's what critical legal studies was up to. But, and, and so these were led by mostly white male leftists, quasi Marxists, but they weren't like old timey Marxists. They were much more interesting, culturally oriented, Paris commune, Jeffrey oriented, uh, 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 not old Marx types. Um, oh, don't run down the old Marxists. I'm not going to run. Well, I'll run them down right now. I'm getting to that. <laughs> okay, so like the old Marxists, however, I'll just say that. Um, and, and this is important. You can bicker with me. The, the, the white critical legal studies movement did not have a particularly progressive leftist understanding of race. It had instead a kind of the very kind of understanding of race that we the critical legal studies people were criticizing as false neutrality so the critical legal studies people like many leftist groups of the time would say okay race well we have we have black people on our panel or we have black people or just understanding race in terms of i'm not prejudiced the mm -hmm. old the old colorblind well now we consider that a right wing understanding, right? The old colorblind, I'm not prejudiced. Uh, we include bl black people. You know, we, do, we don't know why there aren't more black people, but we want them here and we think, you know, we're making them well, blah, 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 blah. So, so that was really the kind of existential, say, root of the rise of critical race theory. A group of scholars of color, mostly, and a couple other of us white people who were interested in race, particularly interested in race, being frustrated with, on the one hand, and this isn't the full story, so on the one hand, the limitations of this leftist group, that was the only group where we kind of found ourselves and we were law students and then beginning law teachers, what do we look for? We look for the progressive group and this group critical legal studies was an insurgent rising pretty exciting interesting group developing critiques of mainstream ideologies of the rule of law really ex interesting and exciting stuff to us but as i say after a couple of years hanging out the failures particularly the scholars of color i won't say i was i was you know the leader of this kim was kimberly crenshaw was um uh uh, uh, frustrated with the inattention and a lack of a, a particularly critical leftist, not, not a standard liberal conventional, but a leftist view of racial power and, and how to resist, how to change racial, uh, racial power. Okay, so on the one hand, there was this lack of, of, of good connection with the legal left in critical legal studies movement. On the other hand, at that point, late 1970s, the civil rights movement, the conventional civil rights movement, as heroic as it had been, was tired and was basically had, I, I say tired, had seemed to run out of new and fresh ideas for how to meet the challenges. And the challenges were, 
as as I describe a little bit in the Politico piece, that the that generation had faced American apartheid with the whites only and colored only signs that, that you all likely remember across America. And the American mainstream, Congress and American culture embraced civil rights. Civil rights legislation was passed and a certain view of racial justice was institutionalized in the courts and in the kind of enlightened American culture. Not everybody was along, of course, but the American enlightenment was along with a certain vision of racial justice. And by the 1970s and 1980s, we were now faced with, in those of us working for racial justice in institutions like law schools, I was on admissions committees I described, faced with a new rear guard action. People who were not saying African-Americans are inferior. People who were not saying this is a white institution segregation forever, but rather people who were saying, no, we're open to desegregation. We welcome all races to apply to the University of Virginia Law School. However, <laughs> we won't suffer a deterioration of standards. And therefore, as I said in the piece, no one, no one from a, a historically black school is going to be admitted here. A certain form of elitist presumption that, that actually ends up, you know, it might have been right if all the black schools were poor, but they're not. So it was just condensation and, and, and racism, basically, ignorance. Um, but that's just a real extreme example. I mean, the examples go deeper than that in the assumptions and baselines of of how law was taught, of how law was conceptualized. I'm just talking in the legal arena because that's where we started. And so we began taking apart, understanding our challenges twofold. We wanted to be progressive and move things forward. We agreed with the critical legal studies idea that law wasn't really neutral, that that was a false ideology, but we wanted to understand it in the particular context of the distribution of racial power. And again, in the particular political context of now meeting resistance, now having continued black inequality, but now justified by neutral colorblind purported justifications and terminology. So we, we, you know, we, we, we focused on that. So, you know, in my book, I have a pretty extensive discussion of the LSAT and how the LSAT was kind of presumed to be a neutral measure of say how people are gonna perform in law school. And, and, it is, and it does have correlation, except that when you stop and think about it, how people are gonna perform in law school means law schools as they have been carried on as largely white and before that totally white at the University of Virginia and many other law schools, totally white institutions. And you could stop and say, well, the way that the law schools train people, well, that correlates with the practice of law. But again, the practice of law isn't a neutral baseline. It's not a neutral criteria because this very practice of law had embraced apartheid as consistent with the Equal Protection Clause. I mean, just crazy 
demonstration that there was more to law than just neutrality. And so that couldn't be a baseline either. And so, you know, what it kind of comes down to is that, is that law is a social practice that's socially constructed, that's politically constructed, that's going to bear the marks of politics and power. And so uh, again, so, so this is a quick introduction to critical race theory. So we were faced with these two, two kind of situations in, in our historical context when we emerged. And uh, the, the, the kind of reigning policy debate at the time was over affirmative action, largely in academic institutions, but also at uh, American job sites. And so we developed a, to the extent that, and this is really simplistic and cartoony, but, but it's not totally wrong, to the extent that the traditional civil rights movement was really asking for colorblindness. Now, I don't really believe that, but it could be interpreted that way. It was really asking for colorblindness. We were doing a critique of colorblindness, of showing how colorblindness could hide racial power. And so that's really what makes critical race theory distinctive, sharply distinctive from the traditional civil rights, uh, civil rights approaches. We're, we're friendly critics of the traditional civil rights movement, but we clearly, we clearly are critics, not necessarily like I think King has been vastly misrepresented, particularly by our opponents in the, in the recent debate about critical race theory, as if King was would be against us. I mean, that's clearly not right. Um, uh, uh, but at least the way that, that the civil rights movement has been institutionalized with Martin Luther King Day and, and as a holiday, et cetera, that, that that official vision of the civil rights movement we are we are um, uh, we are critics of. So I'm gonna I, I'm interested in what y'all have to ask, and you know I think I've gone on too long. I just want to. Uh, there was one question already that somebody emailed and I'll just respond to it. Somebody was asking, why call it a theory? Why is critical race theory called a theory as opposed to, I think somebody said, as opposed to just accurate history or, <laughs> and, and, and there's, there's something to that. And I, my, my answer is, my answer is this though. We think that history, the field of history is only one application of these kinds of ideas. Um, and that, so we don't just call it history because we think the idea of using a self-conscious race consciousness, a racially conscious lens to understand history, but also the present, to use a race conscious lens as opposed to trying to be colorblind we don't, I, at least I don't know. I should have said this at the beginning. Um, uh, uh, now I'm going to say it now, though, so it's somewhere in here. <laughs> I really should have said this at the beginning. It's uh, on a whole mess of levels, so I'll say it now. There are many different critical race theorists who have different approaches. What I'm talking about is like the origins and the kind of basically what we what we agree about. But we don't agree about everything. And so really, you know, I'm kind of mostly telling you what I think as as a as a critical um, uh, uh, as a critical race theorist. We you know, everybody doesn't agree, uh, um, uh, doesn't agree about everything. But I will say this. I don't think that critical race theory is the truth. I think it's just a theory. An interpretive what? theory. 
a way to interpret. There are many ways to interpret, I believe, and none of them are really true in the sense of being totally neutral and objective and disinterested. Why does it have to be disinterested to be true? Well, that's the reigning definition conventionally of... <laughs> but of that's truth. a false definition because yeah. Yeah. there isn't any such thing, I don't think. Right. Gary, I, I had a question too. Um, I have the impression that the, all this fury about critical race theory isn't about critical race theory. It's, they just don't want to talk about race. They don't want to talk about, about uh, uh, you know, about the history of race, about the oppression and all that. They just cut it out. And, critic, and critical race theory, because it's sort of hard to understand, seems like the most vulnerable point to attack. Does that sound well, right to you? Yeah, that does sound right. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Like at a very specific level, there's a, a cultural conservative named Christopher Rufo, who almost single-handedly kind of set out this campaign. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. He says to himself, "I'm gonna exploit white anxiety about talking about race and changes about race, and I'm gonna call everything that people don't, the white people don't like or anxious about, critical race theory." Yeah. And so. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is clear that that it's not critical race theory they're talking about. Okay, so if you if you were with me through my you know fifteen minute spiel, I hope you got the sense that this is not a superficial little cartoon about American history or something. This, we've done serious work. We're, you know, we we we're, we're a serious uh, we're a serious approach. We've studied our history, and we are offering what we think is a different view. Uh, but as, as, as I started to say, we don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily, I think it's one of the contending views and I'm willing to contend for what it. What is the other view? I don't get it. I don't think, that, what's the other contending view? Well, Connie, not- so, so the other, there are other views of what race, racial justice consists of besides. Racial, wait, critical race theory isn't talking about racial justice, I don't think, but describing the world we live in. Is that right? No, I don't. That's what maybe no. maybe 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 I can just fill in a little bit that that we are criticizing a particular theory of racial justice, colorblindness, and thereby implicitly saying that any true theory of racial justice, any movement towards racial liberation, cannot be colorblind. We'll have to take account of the survival of the African American community, say, as a community. Well, you see, I just disagree with that, that colorblindness is even any kind of a, a, a possibility of, of being a contender in yeah. analysis. It just it isn't true. I, I, I hear you. And, and, I, and, I, and, and I just, I feel that it's, you're giving too much, way too much. Right. I, I, so I said not all critical race theorists agree. And so Connie, you're, you're, you're not alone in critical race theory. There's many people who would say to me, uh, perhaps a more postmodern oriented philosopher or whatever. I don't want me to be sound all pretentious, but might say to me exactly what Connie just said. And yeah, critical race theory people. So let me put it a different way, Connie. Critical race theory people might disagree, might all agree that race consciousness is a necessary lens to interpret and therefore agree with what you just said, the colorblindness just off the table. I, I don't agree with that myself, but um, the the what, but on the other for the present or for the future. 
Are you saying that in the present there exists in this country color blindness? No, 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 I'm not, not saying this. No, this is not a descriptive thing. This is a, a question of what would be good. Okay, so you're talking about the theoretical, the cure. And I agree with you, yes. the cure is debatable, but not okay. the factual underlying situation. I see. And I, I see. feel yes. that most people think of critical race theory as being the descriptive of, yeah. of what we're living in. <laughs> Thank you, Connie. That's and, a great clarification. Solutions are all over the place. Yeah, that's a great clarification. I think, and I think that's that. Uh, with that clarification, I would agree with you about colorblindness. The the, the I tend to think um, of what what your ideal is, like what your vision of of racial justice is, as deeply connected to how you view the present and the past. So that's what tripped me up. But now that, that you put it this way, yes, I, I agree. So you know the, the conservatives are even arguing, and I think this is partly what Connie's reacting to, the conservatives are even arguing now that you should like do, do American history in a colorblind way. So slaves just <laughs> happen to be black and slave owners just happen to be white. It wasn't like a- That's the way we learned it. That's the way we already learned it. Yeah. Well, well, it's interesting. I didn't actually learn it that way. Yeah, I went it to school. To me it was all given, and it was all okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, but I mean, I learned it in Georgia as a highly racial. I learned it from a from a white supremacy point of view as a highly racialized thing. Um, well, let me get back to Kent. You had asked about the the uproar in the schools and the controversy, and how it's not really about critical race theory. It's about white reactions, and and I want to get back to that because I do think. I do want to agree with that, that after the George Floyd murder, masses of people, millions of people came together in, in America and, and, and expressed some commitment to achieving racial justice and expressed some understanding that the prior generation of racial justice work had been too superficial and inadequate. More needed to be done. And I think these people came back, many of them were teachers and administrators in schools, came back to their curriculum and saw how they were teaching the American Revolution and the Civil War. Uh, I'll tell you all a story. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I'm with family who can remember these times. My Georgia history book in, 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 I can't, I don't know, in 1969 or 70, my Georgia history book said, the Ku Klux Klan was a necessary organization because the Negroes were drunk on their newfound freedom right. and needed the policing of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just, the reason I throw that out there here is that clearly, if you're going to move forward, you got to change the Georgia history book. But what well, I'm saying is that all these teachers went back after the George Floyd summer and looked at their curriculum. My wife's a fifth grade teacher, so I, I watched this process and said, I, you know, I can't go on teaching like this. This has got to change. And so I think there's actually a widespread commitment in America right now that the, things have to change and that the uproar we're seeing is the uproar of a, of a, of a minority 
who are so. anxious and scared and and some and maybe are carrying over anger from past past interactions etc but um, i think i don't think we i think that we should understand that we are winning yeah absolutely i'd like to make a comment that as far as white reaction is concerned i've been i was surprised to read the concern with blame that the parents said i don't want my children to feel guilty to take blame for this situation yeah and i can understand what's happening in the past if you yourself were not personally bigoted you were free of blame you were right. free of guilt right but now if you're arguing that it's really built in and, and subconscious um even if you yourself are not bigoted you're not free exactly and so in a funny way the blame is not avoidable and and yes and, this yeah. is kind of like saying, I don't deserve, I don't want that. I don't want my kid to have that. I, I, I hope this isn't too controversial to say that I agree with the parents who say they don't want their kids blamed for stuff. I mean, that, of course not. The, the thing that what's happened weirdly. How about blaming that, their great grandparents? No, I'm fine with that, but nobody, that's not. I don't want to blame really, kids. Yeah, nobody really cares about that. But but separate before we get to that that question though, um, what what I think has happened, and I, again I want to appeal to y'all because I feel like not that many people remember these times. I went to a racial sensitivity group meeting in 1970 as part of the ESAP program to help desegregate Georgia schools, and the 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 the, uh, the facilitator took us all in a room. There were two white kids and two black kids from every high school in Atlanta took us to a room in a motel and turned the lights off and had us touch each other's faces and various other weird experiences. Okay. So these were, y'all might remember these many, many y'all participated in racial no. sensitivity group sessions that were based on the idea that racism was rooted in subjective ignorance, that white people needed to learn that once they learned, they wouldn't be racist anymore and blah, 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 blah. And there was these like, more or, less, more or less confrontations with white people that, that diversity trainers would run, like you'd be taken into a room and you'd say, list all the stereotypes you have of black people. And so, so there would be all these horrible oh things. Oh my God, what a Yeah, question. yeah, no, it was, so, but what, the reason I'm saying this is because the, my sense is that that model, that old model of trying to confront people one by one and change them by getting, by teaching them that model of the, whatever, whoever was behind putting us in a room and closing the lights, the, 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 that, that model has been grafted onto our structural and systemic racism discourse to produce exactly what, 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 what Connie just described, I think, really well. Whereas, yeah, it's implicitly every white person is guilty because they're all benefiting from these structures but the the mistake of that, and it's the mistake of diversity training, is that it's individualistic. It's still a political and social problem. It's not a problem that you really put on the back of a of a of a seven year old in second grade. It just can't be framed that way. But it's the it's the weird mixture of a frame that was really designed to, on the model of racism as an individual thing and racist head 
That's the model of diversity training. And it's been grafted onto this newer, more sophisticated understanding of racial power in ways that, that, that I think are, are, should, be, you know, should be corrected. I, I think we should have empathy for the mistakes that some trainers have made with kids and recognize they might need more resources, more, uh, um, uh, um, I say more regulation. Like I, I kind of think that diversity trainers should, you know, somebody should be watching out what's going on with, with, with people because some of the diversity trainers are actually causing more white resentment than fixing it, frankly. So Kevin McCarthy on the floor of the House of Representatives about two weeks ago made the statement that America's not a racist country. Yeah. He made a number of other statements that I think were ridiculous. And we can talk about those if, if they fit into the context of this conversation. Yeah. But, but the point is that what he's trying to do, it seems to me, is to keep white Americans from feeling any, from having feelings about the, the, com, the complicity of anyone in the current generation for past racist acts. And what I, where I want to take issue with you, Gary, is I don't think that the term to use with regard to that responsibility is blame. The term to use is responsibility. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. I agree and with people, you. And, and if, and if two-year-olds are supposed to be compassionate for people in India who are dying from COVID, they're supposed to be compassionate for, for Black slaves and for the descendants of those slaves who've had to deal with the effects of racism for 400 years. But I, I also think the, that it's not over. It, it's yeah, not yeah. past. It's still present. And I think it is very difficult to learn how to recognize that you are part of a, uh, of, a, of, a, of, a of a bad system. You are part. I mean, it's not personal blame, but you, you have to you have to recognize your complicity, or we haven't really gotten anywhere. So this is I, I'm, I'm uh, this is the hardest discussion, I guess, and we've gotten here really fast with the with the questions. Um, I I hear and agree with what the last couple of comments. I, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, I, I missed your first name, George. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, um, I do agree. It's responsibility. However. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, just as a general matter of political organizing and, and hoping for a better future, I've never found this model, and maybe I, I, I've tried to reveal my biases, I've never found this model of shaming to be productive. And, and so that's the, and so, so, so like when I read the book, White Fragility, as from where I'm coming from, I, in effect, kind of understand and agree with the descriptive parts of that. I don't know if, if y'all are familiar with it, but it's a, it's a book that, that's written by a white uh, diversity trainer and largely addressed to white people, saying that white people have a kind of defensive reaction mm -hmm. to discussions of race and goes through various ways that, that, that white people are defended, et cetera. It's largely accurate kind of structurally but in a bigger sense i believe that book has has given so much ammunition 
to our adversaries because the way the book blames and tries to get white people to self-flagellate with guilt and to focus on themselves and to treat racism as if it's a self-hygiene issue, like having the right deodorant. I better take care of my hygiene and I better take care of my racism, do some flossing, and then I'll be all set. And so, and that's that to me, that's the tone of it's a little bit the tone of, of, of Professor Kendi's book. Who I, I think that book is much more profound, but, but, um, but I understand, I understand the satisfaction that some might get to <laughs> white people being uncomfortable and white people feeling guilty and white people self flagellating. I just think, I'll just say, and I'll just speak now. I'm going to lay my authority down as I'm from Atlanta, even though I'm Jewish and born in Brooklyn. Okay, so I got to qualify that. Um, that 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 I think it's a counterproductive progressive strategy to try mm -hmm. to make out our adversaries as enemies, as white supremacists, as opposed to a more empathic view of the manner in which just being, say, a white working class person, yes, structurally, they have had benefits from whiteness. There's no doubt about it. On the and other still hand, do. And, on still the, do. and still do, and still do, yes. On the other hand, they are not in power and they're getting kicked around too. Who's not in power? White right. working class people. Well, one thing I like to say to white friends when I'm discussing these things is that black people too have been distorted by this racism. That it's not only white people who have been um, twisted, contorted by it. We all have been. And that it's difficult for all of us <coughs> to get out of it. It's not just white people who need to see how deeply embedded it is in our way of life. Black people have to understand that too. Blacks are closer to understanding, but not completely. So, so Gary, it's, so it's, 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 possible, it's a possible that whites who take umbrage with books like White Fragility, which I've read, are doing so perhaps not only in part, but, but primarily as a way to prevent or, or to avoid having to engage in a real and, and, and significant way with the realities of racism. That is, rather than trying to do something about racism, they can simply say, I'm not a racist. I'm and okay. Their energies, spend their energies defending themselves and not deal with any of the issues at all. But that, yes, but unfortunately, that's kind of the loop where that, that analysis takes white people. I mean, the, the whole approach is, as I said, a kind of hygiene approach. It's not a social change and political approach. And so, yeah, getting back to your earlier point that, that uh, blame and, and accountability and responsibility are different. Responsibility means that who has the power to change things and let's get it changed. And um, uh, you know, that's where it's different. But I want to, uh, if I could just answer very quickly uh, Mason's question about uh, the project of describing U.S. history in terms of white-black relationships, because I think it, th this question impacts our discussion. Um, uh, the question is, would her approach be considered with, uh, considered consistent with CRT? Well, is the, uh, you're talking about Jill Lepore? Yeah, Jill yes. Lepore. Okay. Yeah, I was in the chat and uh, Mason asked. So 
Um, this is another issue that maybe people in critical race theory would, would disagree about. I think that the, one of the problems of a colorblind model is that race has played a su substantial and significant part in the construction of our world, in the distribution of power, wealth, prestige, and a whole mess of other stuff. Mm -hmm. However, however, I don't think that race is the only vector that has determined those questions at all. I think it's one of many, not an infinite number, but certainly gender. Wealth. <laughs> wealth, class, I mean, class, you know, it's one thing not to be a Marxist and think it all comes down to wealth. It's another thing to think wealth has nothing. Mm -hmm. Property interests and wealth interests have nothing. I mean, of course they do. And, and they intertwine and intersect as my, as my comrade Kimberly Crenshaw says, they intersect in complex, in complex ways. So again, to get back to this white fragility question, the problem with the white fragility thing is, yeah, it is kind of satisfying given how neglected any responsibility, how they even telling the truth of what happened, like Fred was describing, it's been silent and absent. And so there's something satisfying just getting it out there and I'm for that, but, but then also making people, making the white people uncomfortable because the idea is that they're the ones that are benefiting from it and they're the ones that got to change it. And, and I have some sympathy with that. I'm a white person. I, I understand that. And I, I understood my role like that for some time. But what I'm saying is I also understood how destructive to any affirmative politics shame and blame is. And it just, uh, and it's, and, and you know, um, I would be, I would be all for it. Wait, 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 let me finish for a second. I'd be all for it because I'm a militant. I told you my, my Panther background, I'd be all for it if it I thought it were, if I thought it were productive, but I don't think it's productive I agree at all. And, productive. and I think it's not true. Race is not the only vector of power. That's why I tried to insert class very quickly and easily with the white working class. The, the parents who are screaming in the school board meetings, by and large, it's not totally true, are the disempowered, the alienated, the neglected, and the discarded in American culture. They're not the Rockefellers, or I mean, I don't know who's in charge anymore, but they're not them. These people are not in charge. When, the, when I described the National Guard troops on the roofs of the, of the suburban Atlanta schools when I was growing up, the Southerners were treated by American culture as, as ignorant, rednecks. They were confronted with power, military power. I was for the military power, but they were discarded from America. They were reduced to the caricature of the Southern sheriff, the redneck Southern sheriff. And what was replaced in that ideology, I was there, so I'm testifying. What was replaced was not a multicultural, multiracial, fantastic democratic administration of public schools in Atlanta. What it was replaced with was another false ideology of neutrality, meritocracy, the new South. And the people who got kicked aside, the so-called rednecks, grew resentment and harbored resentment 
kind of like the Mideast, available to be exploited by Reagan and Trump and Bush to a certain extent. And so that's the appeal I'm making. And I, I'm now making this, now I really have to emphasize, most people in critical race theory do not agree with me. On, about, bla about blame? About, uh, yeah, on these issues of, of I, you know, that, that, that I'm asking for empathy and understanding for those who have been the hardest to take in our cultural, in our cultural universe. And so, yes, the argument gets very complicated. Wait, what, also, are you, what are you saying, um, Ezra? You're saying that that black, blacks have to examine their behavior in the same way that whites have to examine their behaviors. Isn't that, that what you're saying? That is exactly okay. what I'm saying. Okay, yeah, I'm I, saying, would agree, I would agree with that. And as I'm and I'm saying, because I'm giving my example then to 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 uh, to resonate with Gary's point. You remember some time ago we at, this, at one of these meetings we talked about caste. And, and, and the whole notion of caste is to say that, you know, the caste ladder applies to all kinds of categories where, where all of us get stuck. And there's no better way of exemplifying this than in psychiatry because blacks th think in as terrible ways as other group members do, but not, in, not necessarily in the race category, but in other categories. So mm -hmm. there's no reason that a black person walking into a room and seeing, uh, you know, someone who is who, who has some kind of disability, that all black physicians that are uh, sensitive sensitive to those kinds of disabilities. No, no, it doesn't work that way. And 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 all of us faced with certain things in front of us are biased, and that's one of the things that I have insisted on trying to teach my students. Bias is not just a white thing. It's, it's, it's a human thing. And it, and it operates in different categories. And it's, it's not just in this political struggle now with, with critical race theory. We, everybody's got to understand how it's operative in, 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 unique, uh, in unique spaces where we all operate and uh, operate differently. If I could, if I could uh, respond, Ezra, that's really, thank you for sharing that. Um, and you know, this, your, your narrative kind of tells different sides of this complex thing. So trying to, trying to become a professional and not allow the, the, the idea of racial difference to form an excuse for blacks underperformance and in, in fulfilling a professional role is a really important dimension. And yet it, it is in some tension with this other piece of what I presented as the critical race theory approach, which denies the possibility of neutrality. So your model kind of assumes you got to focus on bias and everybody's got biases, but it kind of holds out as an ideal not being biased, being scientific to the, you know, being having the proper therapeutic approach, say, to the patient. But one, one thing as, as, we're, as we're getting near the end here, I, I want to bring back to so a big part of of, of critical race theory and in, in this dimension of neutrality that we're talking about has been to try to argue that things that were formerly taken as neutral were not really neutral. Mm. To me, as an individual, one of the most profound aspects of that was the field of 
knowledge, epistemology of what get what counts as knowledge. So I grew up, I grew up as I said, as a child of a single mother, kind of poor and shut out in Atlanta for various reasons. And I had the idea and, and grew up in Atlanta schools, which were not great. And so I had the idea that we had been, we, some, we had been locked out of knowledge and knowledge was being kept. And this was easier to see before the digital age in these card catalogs and the card catalogs were like these boxes of all the knowledge in the world. And, and my dream was to be in that card catalog, Gary, Heller Gary, you know, Heller comma Gary. And, and I'd, and I'd be immortal because I'd be part of the, of knowledge. And I had this idea of knowledge as a kind of quantitative thing, you can accumulate it, but as a neutral thing, like the only issue was it's distribution like money. But right. it was like this kind of money versus that kind of just we want money. And so and then I got to Harvard and this is what I'm really interested in, in y'all, because y'all I'm assuming have much stronger experience than I have of this. I got to Harvard, which was the citadel of money. They kept knowledge, like all the knowledge that's fit to put in the uh, in the card catalog, Harvard University, like the belly of the beast for the knowledge, the knowledge industry. And it was clear to me that the car, it became clear to me first in, in, in feeling the, the strong sense of, and we were talking about, it, it's not all race, but it was a big part of Harvard's a white institution. And even when it was desegregated, part of what I'm appealing to about critical race theory is what I'm assuming or perhaps presuming was many of your experiences that when you got to Harvard and it was supposedly desegregated with 18 or 20 of y'all, it was still a white institution, right? You still felt its whiteness, its white cultural form, its power, even though you couldn't necessarily delineate, oh, it's because of this racist or that racist or that person used the N-word or anything like that. The whiteness of the institution and its upper classness, it just oozes from the place. It makes, it made me feel little and it makes everybody feel like a fraud that goes, you know, unless you've, unless you've grown up with that stuff, it makes everybody feel like a fraud, an outsider. In any event, we critical race theorists got there and saw that the way that knowledge of people of color was organized, it wasn't like we wanted a distribution of the knowledge. The way it was organized was screwed. <laughs> It was all organized according to the discrimination model, according to a kind of American ideal of non-discrimination and individualism and equal merit and equal opportunity and blah, 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 of American myth structure. And race was just kind of tacked in there. And so we had to change knowledge. We had to produce different knowledge of the legal system. And so to me, this is like the deepest profound idea that we are not in the traditional struggle that many of us thought we were in with truth on the one side and distortion and prejudice and fiction on the other side. I think we're in, we're in, we're in, a, in, a, in a more complex world where it's a struggle to define, to produce knowledges, where there's no kind of meta-knowledge to tell you what's important and where it's of course right not to accept the white Europeans definition of what's important to collect as knowledge and that be the end of it. 
because it counted too much of us. And I'll say us here, because my, my grandmother who grew up in a shtetl is also not in the official histories. But those 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 European colonial histories, I mean, yeah, yeah, they're they're um, uh, they're insufficient. But I'm just proposing, just like in history. But there's not going to be a neutral meta history. We're going to be struggling over history, over interpretation, over curriculum in school. And we have to understand ourselves. I think not as the one the enlightened ones against the barbarians the unenlightened, the mob, not like that, but as fellow citizens who have to try our best to bring everybody around that we can, knowing that no one has, I don't think, a real claim. I mean, I just, the reason I respond to this kind of claim is because I've always felt that the, that the claim to truth and science and unbiasedness and disinterested neutrality has always been a claim to power. It's always been a claim to try to justify this or that exertion of power. And I've just, I said I started out rebellious. We know when, the, as, soon as, as soon as they turn off the lights in that room, I said, this is, this is screwed. I'm going to resist this. Um, and, and, and I resisted it when I, when I, when I, when I got to its, uh, to its, uh, to its, to its authoritative uh, claims in, in this area too. And you see, that's why this whole area is so earth-shaking. Because essentially, if you're saying there is no solid truth as, as that we can see at any one time, there is nothing that is permanently true. Now, that goes against a lot of things. Religion, it goes against really old-fashioned patriotism, the very fact of that flexibility, the very fact that you say, no, no, there, there is no um, God of reality. We have to struggle with it and look at it. It's actually kind of fun to do, but, but, but there is a world that absolutely is not um, familiar, accustomed, agreeable to living like that. And I think in some ways that's what we're dealing with. Your, what we learned in Cast and I guess Baldwin too, is that these fixed ideas of what is an American, these fixed ideas of certain truths are key to the identity of many white people. And when you, when you call that into question, it is devastating. So in many ways, it, it is a serious, issue that we're confronting really fundamental more than more than we've done before i think yes and that's and I, why that's why i'm trying to describe a project in which in which this class of the dispossessed has to recover has to rebuild their identity in a positive way yeah and and, and there's nothing and and there can't be the lost cause identity that's a failure and it's got to stop i'm agreeing with everybody but but, but they do have to rebuild their identity. Everybody Absolutely. has to be able to look in the mirror and respect themselves. And, and uh, you know, it's just, a, um, it's just a starting point. But, this, but to me, this opens up, you know, the, the idea that things aren't fixed. So uh, let, me, let me put it this way. The, the, the idea that things aren't fixed has always been presented to me 
as, listen, if you're trying to organize people and keep them together, say in a community, you really need fundamental things that people can easily, and this is the appeal <laughs> of all religious fundamentalism, Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody says the same thing. And then the question is, and, and even as a young Marxist, I was, I was told when I started moving a little POMO, a little more away from the Orthodox stuff, I was told, listen, you're not going to be able to organize working people with your without saying the bosses and the workers and then using that kind of structuralist Marxist language. And I learned in my life that that was wrong, that you don't need, uh, um, uh, you didn't need Elijah Muhammad and his followers in order to have an African-American community with an identity. You didn't need a fundamentalist definition of that identity to have a community. And Jews have, well, Jews might not be a good example because the Orthodox have kept Judaism going, but the non-Orthodox, at least in North America, are intermarrying at such rates that it's not clear that the community will, but I hope it will. I mean, I hope that that identity can survive anti-fundamentalism. That's what I think about. That's what I think about these identity questions. And and you, I think, Connie, again, that it's a really good, good description. I agree with your description that that for many whites, they are identity fundamentalists. They might not be religious fundamentalists, but they are identity fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And they had an identity ripped, ripped away from them in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah. And, and now all they've got left is the kind of hollow vestiges and symbols of that identity. And, and, but what part of what I'm saying is we progressives are, I don't want to blame us, but we're, we're partly responsible for villainizing them and vilifying them instead of treating them as a redevelopment project. <laughs> Hampton, you had a last question? Or yes. Something to say? yes, thank you. Uh, I really like the direction that we've been going in in the last 10 minutes or so. And I think we're, to me, we seem to be hearing each other pretty, pretty well. Uh, one way to look at this question, I think, is to turn it on, on its head as, as somebody from the Northeast who's lived in Nashville for the last 40 years. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in how furious the uh, Marsha Blackburns and the uh, Governor Bill Lees of Tennessee become at CRT. And I think what, what they can't tolerate is just the just the mention of, of of race as a significant variable and with with different groups having different experiences in the uh, country and that's why they want it shut down and shut out that's the uh, negative side of it right right can, right. can, 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 can you give me just 10 seconds yeah I, I promise no more than 10 10 seconds all right I, I just want to answer uh, I just want to answer Gary about the knowledge business because I think this, the, the, the psychoanalysts now are thinking about that and finding it um, not satisfying. Now, they have come up with a term called um, inquiry. They're interested in, in curiosity about the other and thinking that if, if we can find a way to argue about that and a way of developing it and thinking about it, that it's an extraterrestrial kind of concept, <laughs> but it is in reaction to the notion that searching for knowledge, uh, as in much of the, the, the pedagogical theorizing uh, about diversity, is simply not, it's simply not sufficient. It's not satisfactory. Just knowing 
knowing geography and so on and culture about the other is not sufficient. It's, there's gotta be something deep, deeper. Uh, and, and, and they're thinking about this term of a genuine, a genuine interesting curiosity about the other, which, which surpasses all of this other stuff. But I just wanted you to think about that. Amen. Gary, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and challenging. Yes, thank you. It was a wonderful discussion. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it myself. Thank you so much for, for having me, and I hope I was helpful. That was Georgetown University Law Center professor Gary Peller speaking about critical race theory. He is a contributor to and co-editor of Critical Race Theory, the key writings that form the movement. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Thank you.